Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me, and today I'm talking to Jesse Thorne, who is a podcast pioneer. I, we used to call him a small business owner. I don't know if that's technically correct anymore, and we can talk about why. Uh, but up until today, he ran a, a podcast network called Maximum Fun. I've been listening since 2009. Delighted to talk to him. Welcome, Jesse. Well, thank you so much for having me, Peter. I think I probably am still a small or mid-sized business owner. Should we jump right in? First of all, here, let's, let's tell people who are not hardcore Maximum Fun listeners, what your show is and what Maximum Fun Network was prior to today. Sure. I host three podcasts, two comedy shows and a public radio show called Bullseye. Bullseye is an arts and culture interview show that I have been doing every week since I was in college. It's really good. You should listen to it if you haven't listened to it. I have been podcasting it since 2004. And then I do two comedy shows, a a very silly, vulgar one called Jordan Jesse Go and a more sincere and feelings-filled one called Judge John Hodgman, where I am John Hodgman's sidekick. And, uh, you know, Maximum Fun is the podcast network that grew around that over the course of, you know, really over the course of the last 20 years, just a little bit by a little bit, like the, you know, the mountain of seagull excrement on a coastal island that then becomes the fertilizer that grows our crops. I was going to get bat guano in there. So uh-huh. you are a podcast pioneer. Like I just said, you you built, you built got in early. You figured this thing out. And what was supposed to have happened is you would have cashed in in the last few years in the great Spotify-fueled podcast boom where not only Spotify but Sirius and everyone else uh, who thought this was Amazon – Thought they would throw money at podcasters, podcast networks. They would throw money at you. But that is not what you're here to talk about today. I'm so bad at cashing in. Jesse, what happened? Cashing in is not my core competency. I did, you know, once in a while somebody would send us a note. And this was true even in the first and broadly the first and second podcast booms, you know, 2000 five or whatever, mm-hmm. and then 2008 or 10 or whenever the sort of, we'd get a, an inquiry once in a while. And I could never figure out, on the one hand, I didn't get into this to like be a business person who makes spreadsheets about building scale and how to exploit labor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not what moves my groove. There are other models, but but you did this because you liked it, and then you built a company or anything you liked. It's the American dream, except you didn't make a yeah. gazillion dollars. I used to say backwards entrepreneur. I figured uh-huh. out stuff that I wanted to do and then figured out how to pay for it rather than figuring out what would make money. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, I wasn't sure that I wanted to still be a business owner because it's very hard and stressful, and I don't have any – it's not other people's money – It's only my money. I never had any investors and I don't have any other money. My family doesn't have money. Like my wife doesn't have money. There's no other pool of money if something went wrong. So it always was appealing 
what if I wasn't a business owner? The problem with that was that if I had sold to Amazon or iHeart or Spotify or any of these larger companies that were buying smaller podcast outfits, I knew a few things would happen. Number one, I would probably have to sell my shows in the package. Mm-hmm. And I didn't particularly want to do that. They'd like be buying one of the it reasons, for you. Yeah. One of the reasons that Maximum Fun exists is because I think creators should own their work, our hosts own their shows, and I wanted to own my work. So that's because these are things I've spent my entire adult life on. Number two, I knew that if I did it, it was very, very unlikely that I could find a buyer who would want to do it with the values that I have. And that's not to say my values are better. They are than some of these outfits. <laughs> but like, it's not just that. It's that like things like, you know, creators owning the work, right? And number three was, I knew that even if all the other pieces came together and somehow I found someone I loved to sell the company to and so on and so forth, at the end of the day, I knew at least a few of our shows and a number of our employees would be redundant or insufficiently profitable and they would lose their life. They would say this little show here that only has this many subscribers or listeners, it's not enough scale for us. And we have huge lists, we have huge shows and we have, you know, big for independent podcast, but small compared to huge shows, shows. Mm-hmm. And I think they're both important. Like they're both part of Max Fund because we think they're great and we think they deserve support. And there was no middle ground, which which some people have done, which is tell you what, why don't you give me a bunch of money? I'll still own the company. I'll, you'll just give me a bunch of money and now I'll have your money and I get to run my own company. I don't think I know how to do that stuff, man. I've, I don't know any business people. I know that there are people who like go into rooms and ask for money for things. I've never done that one time in my entire life. I have no idea how to do it. I don't know who I would ask. I don't know. Like, who who would I ask? Mark Marin? I can find you some bankers if you ever want to do this again. In the end, what happened is this. My life got really, 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 really hard. It went from hard in the sense that I have 17 jobs and three children to really existentially hard. Before the pandemic, my wife had sat me down and she literally said to me, you have to figure out a different way to do this. I'm afraid that you will die. And I was working very hard on that. And then the pandemic happened and things got way, way harder in ways that I could never even have imagined. And so I knew that I had to do it. Like I had to, I couldn't deal with the additional source of stress that was, I'm responsible for all these people that I love's jobs. And I couldn't deal with the prospect that if something went wrong, it would mean that's the end of my house or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. And I called bankers. Like I didn't know, but my wife went to law school. She doesn't practice law, but she went to law school. Her friend from law school knew some, knew some how to call bankers. Yeah. So we did. I never got to the point of meeting with the bankers because I still couldn't figure out that thing, which was, how do I do this and not feel like a monster after I've done it? Mm -hmm. Because the people that work here and the people that I work with, the 
the hosts of our shows and creators of our shows that we work with as partners like are my friends. And my father-in-law works at an employee-owned hardware store in Marin County, Jackson's Hardware in San Rafael, California. And he's worked there for 30 years. And I had no idea how employee ownership worked. But I thought, before I do have these meetings with these bankers, I'm going to call Steve. And that led me down, you know, an internet search hole. I was going to say a Google hole. I didn't want to plug them. Let's say a Alta Vista hole. Yep. And I found a nonprofit in Oakland called Project Equity that specializes in helping businesses transition to employee ownership. And I just cold called them and said, can you help me? So employer ownership, I think anyone can figure out what that means, but I'm thinking co-op, right? Employees literally own the thing. In our case, it's a co-op. I I didn't know the differences between different kinds, but when I talked to Project Equity, they were able to help me figure out that what I was probably shooting for was a worker-owned cooperative specifically. So I'm, I nerd out on all this stuff and how, how to put together a media company and how to run a media company. Employee ownership sounds cool. You've announced it today. You're going to hear this podcast a few days later. You can go look up the video. Uh, Jesse's employees now co-owners explaining why this is great. How does this solve the initial problem you had, which is this is super stressful. It's all on me. If I get hit by a bus or if I just become bad at my job, this all goes away and and I lose my house and my employees lose their job. How does that solve any of those problems? It's a way to share that burden with the people who I actually believe in and trust to be responsible for this business and its values. The people that work at Maximum Fund, like if you were trying to maximize your earning potential, if you were just trying to get to the top of the business in whatever way, probably that's not why you wouldn't go work at MaxFund. I mean, just to be to underscore this, up until a few months ago, if you had a pulse, you could get a job in audio and <laughs> yes. and people were in very high demand. And if you had a mediocre podcast, people would throw money. That That door has clanged shut. But up until very recently, and there was just a huge rush on audio producers, and I work with great ones, but they were very hard to come by. And it was a lot like a few years earlier when it was very hard to find someone who could edit video for your Facebook videos. Again, that cycle has changed. But to put it, I guess just to reinforce your point, people who were working with you and for you were doing because they were mission-driven, they liked you, they liked the product. Exactly. And I believed in them. And I also knew that... Our managing director, Bikram Chatterjee, and our other management level employees could be responsible for the company because, frankly, as my life had been in in crisis for some time, I had not been. So I had been forced to trust them entirely. And they had done wonderful work. So ultimately, what a co-op means for us is... Everyone who is a full-time employee at Maximum Fund is eligible to join the co-op. If they decide to join the co-op, it's optional. If they decide to join the co-op, they give a few hundred bucks as a sort of um, buy-in. That few hundred bucks is really just a sort of way of making sure that they're doing this on purpose and not Mm -hmm. backing into it, that they actually are choosing this. That few hundred bucks goes into a trust that they get back with interest when and if they leave Max Fund. Then they are able to vote on the board of directors or stand for election to the board of directors. The board of directors is 
in charge of the company, in charge of overseeing management, in charge of the biggest decisions. There are a few decisions. I think in our case, I didn't write the bylaws. If we move the office, that is like a an all-employees vote. There's mm-hmm. like a couple things like that. But generally speaking, it's the board overseeing the existing managing structure. For me, as the soon-to-be worker owner, because I'm going to be a worker owner at the company, what that means is that this burden that I, a reluctant business person, was carrying of being responsible for not just my family, but all these people who I really care about, their families as well, as well as the mission of the company, is one that is shared among the, in our case, two dozen people that work at MaxFun. So you're trading 100% equity in the company that you built yourself with the help of other people over a couple decades. And in return, you are, you are trading that in. You're not getting paid for it, right? They're not paying you for equity in the company. You're getting peace of mind. Do I have that trade right? Yes. I also get money. It basically works like this. Um, we did a bunch of financial modeling over the future of maximum fund. This is something that <laughs> was not what we spent our time doing previously mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and was a lot of hard work. Thankfully, this nonprofit project equity was able to support us with that. And, you know, modeled the company out years in the future and basically said over a, a certain length of time, uh, this is what the company can could afford to borrow. And so the new co-op, including me, is borrowing a small portion of that from what's called a CDFI, a community development financial institution, um, which is a basically a bank that specializes in this, a mission-driven bank that specializes mm-hmm. in this. So I get a small portion of of what the company will earn over the next uh, X number of years, and then I get a very small portion of the revenue. So both of those are both significantly less than if I just stayed the owner of the company. (laughs) And and also at the the end of those years, I no longer get anything. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly a lot less than if I had sold to, you know, Serious. Amazon three yeah. years ago when they wanted to buy my expertise or whatever, but it's not nothing. And so- Okay, good. I feel a little better. I was worried like, you're giving up everything and you're getting, you're getting nothing No, not at it. all. This isn't like, I don't, I think the point of this is not that it is an act of charity on my part. It is that it enhances the value of the company because- you know, there's lots of data that suggests that employee-owned companies are more productive, more successful, more sustainable. It also leaves me the opportunity to sell out without selling out. And frankly, to still be part of this thing that I've built, right? Like I'm still going to be doing my shows. My shows are still going to be part of Maximum Fun. I'm still going to be working at Maximum Fun, doing the things that I, I really love doing at Max Fun. You know, I'm going to be available to the board so that I can make the contributions that that are useful, but I don't have to either feel like I'm ruining the thing that I care about so much or uh, like I'm ruining the lives They're of the screwing people, the people who helped you so build much. the thing that you're exactly. cashing in on. That sounds good. The rest of the business stays the same, right? You are ad-supported. You have a syndication deal. I assume it's syndication with NPR for your show. And then you ask your listeners to, to become contributors slash subscribers. That all stays the same. I mean, we are primarily supported by those members. We, we don't have – we have a little little bit of stuff behind a paywall, but it's just kind of fun thank you stuff. It's not 
the bulk of the content. Almost everything is free, and we just say, if you think this is good, please pay for it, and people totally do. So that's 70% or something of our revenue. And then we do run some ads, and yeah, like you said, I get a little bit of money from my public radio show being on public radio and that kind of thing. But this doesn't change the structure of any of that. It doesn't change the structure of our relationships with the shows that we are working with as partners. It really is just about who at the end of the day is overseeing the business operations. So you mentioned the hardware store in Marin. I know about the Park Slope Co-op, which is, uh, yeah. uh, I guess, works. Um, and it provides endless fodder for for uh, sharp and mean uh, Twitter comments. And then there's Defector, the sports site created by the people who used to work at Deadspin. I had them on a year after they launched. And they launched as a co-op, essentially. Are there other media models for this? Are there other people you've seen who, who are doing this in media? I really haven't. You know, when I worked with Project Equity, a lot of the companies that they work with are companies where it's a small to mid-sized business. Maybe they make something. Like, let's say they make a particular auto part or something. Like, there's a metal shop across the street from my house. They make those, um, those like, sneeze guards in buffet restaurants and, like, custom stainless steel yeah, restaurant kitchen sure. pieces, right? So it's a, it's a company like that. You know, 25 people work there, 40, 50 people work there. And... The owner wants to retire, but the owner doesn't have anyone to sell to, and they don't want to just shut things down because everyone will lose their job. And this is a way to preserve the business, uh, also get out of the business, and also make some money, right? That is, And then there are situations like Defector. Defector were people who they all got laid off together thanks to, you know, venality, and they decided to start something together. And I don't know exactly what their – I think they're co-owners. I don't know exactly how their, their co-op works. But it's definitely it seems you know, to be the working. closest thing. Yeah, and, and God bless them. And and I know that a lot of people who signed on initially said, "I I'm support. I either liked I liked your writing. I liked what you did. And also, fuck those private equity guys. I'm I'm voting with my my eighty dollars or whatever it was. And that was very much part of the appeal. Do you think that will add sort of to your will that benefit you as well? I mean, you're not you're not you're not. Uh, there's no one for you to be angry at. That's just a cool thing you're doing. I think that is like a not insignificant difference. Like our audience are not motivated by being angry at something. Our audience are to borrow the small tomato brand. They're a bunch of little sweetums. But yeah, I mean, I think I think our audience has always supported us voluntarily, despite knowing that we are a for-profit business, because they believe in the stuff that we make. They think it's worth paying for, and they think we're doing it in a responsible way, both for the audience and business-wise. I think this is demonstrating to people that in addition to treating the creators right, which they can see because the creators stick around and they, they know they don't have to, they know that we're treating our staff right, that the people who work at the business. Because like, I didn't want people to think when they sign up to support Max Fund shows that there's a, you know a fat cat skimming the cream off the top and this way they know that like when there's cream, it, it gets shared among the mm -hmm. employees, the ones who- It's explicitly uh, part of the pitch. Milked the cow? The metaphor is getting muddy, but I think you know where I'm headed. Yeah. I got teats in my head. Mm -hmm. Why do you think other media companies haven't tried this? Is it something where it's hard to do once you've already set up and you're set up and running? You guys are an exception because you already are a subscriber 
supported to begin with and everyone else has some loan or some VC or some owner? Is it, do you need a certain profile to be able to pull this off? Could you, could you start from scratch? Could next Jesse do this from zero? I think absolutely it would be relatively straightforward to do this from scratch. I think that some businesses, it is complicated by the fact that there are these complex relationships between the investors who have equity in the company. That is tricky. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about either a new enterprise or something that's owned by one person or a couple of people who agree that this is a good idea, then it is very doable. I mean, like I was grateful to have the assistance of Project Equity, whose job it is to support companies in doing this all day long. You know, before I was a business person, I worked at the Trust for Public Land in San Francisco. And like if I was a farmer who wanted to get an agricultural, like ensure my land would stay a farm forever and get a little money for it, I would be grateful to have the the help of TPL, just as I was grateful to have the help of Project Equity. But it is totally doable. It is not that hard and it's not that onerous. And just to be clear, because I spend a lot of time on this show and in my writing talking about media companies that are struggling with the downturn in advertising or the fact that everyone wants subs – the subscriptions were greater the panacea and now everyone wants subscriptions and those are tightening up. This doesn't change any of your underlying business dynamics, makes you, I guess, to be cynical about it, a little more marketable to subscribers. It's not a new business model. It's just an ownership model. No. And in fact, I think that the fact that our company – was built to be successful irrespective of the boom-bust cycle of speculative money. And that was by necessity because, as I said, there was no space. <laughs> I, I didn't have extra money if something went wrong. <laughs> so we're pretty, you know, cycle-proof. And so right now we remain very successful. I mean, it's a profitable company. Like, we're doing well. How many employees? You know? 24. 24 and you are profitable with 24 employees. Yeah, we're doing great. I mean, it like we didn't grow as much last year as we did previous years because everything was weird in the yep. podcast industry, but I will say that, you know, Bikram actually had a conversation with our agent at CAA and said, "Man, it's weird. We didn't grow as much this year as we did in previous years." And uh, our agent said, "You didn't lose money? Well, that's a first that I've heard." <laughs> so, <laughs> like the good news about this is that this is this is something th – I don't know that this is something that rescues a failing company. Mm -hmm. If we were a failing company, I don't think we would be able to do this. But this is something that is a, a great way to sort of stabilize and preserve and hold on to the values of a successful company. We'll be right back with Jesse Thorne, but first a word from a sponsor. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. And we're back. Can we talk about what you do at, when you're not running a business, what you actually do, which is your podcasting? I'm just – I don't want you to tell me your entire life story, but I am curious about how you backed into this. You said you started in college. Was the ambition – did you have an ambition that you would do this for a living? No, that's a good question. I went to college out of arts high school where I had been acting. 
and I went to Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz, and I am just old enough, I'm 41, I'm just old enough that video making equipment was not accessible to me as a non-rich kid. If I had been a film major, I wouldn't have gotten to touch a camera until senior year, and then it would have been a film camera. Mm -hmm. If I was literally four years younger, that would have been different. But that was, and there was no television production or film production facilities at Santa Cruz. So it was mostly a school focused on marine biology and doing mushrooms. And there was a real radio station there, a radio station that covered the whole Monterey Bay area, which is a pretty big place that is pretty hospitable to college radio. Right, It's a place full of people who really believe in community endeavors mm -hmm. and cool stuff, which is basically the two qualities of college radio. If you get San Francisco without quite as – real estate's not as onerous. It's, yeah. it's a, you can hang. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a San Francisco native, so I can parse differences between Santa yes. Cruz and, and – but we don't have time. And so I went into the radio station and I basically realized – how straightforward it was. I was like, oh, so up is louder? And that's how I got in to radio. It was a matter of this was the thing where the means of production were within my grasp, right? And I tried to get jobs in all kinds of show business when I graduated from college, but I failed across the board. So in the end, I, I asked my then girlfriend, now wife, I said, <laughs> this is true, true conversation. I said, I feel a little pathetic going back to Santa Cruz every week. I was driving from San Francisco, had to borrow my mom's car to do it. I feel a little pathetic. It's like a, a high school quarterback uh, who's a sophomore in junior college going back to his high school to wear his letter jacket. And my wife said, I understand. But uh, and she sort of paused and she said, well, you don't really do anything else. And that's kind of why I stuck with it. I mean, I'm not the kind of person who makes grand visionary plans. I'm the kind of person who can put one foot in front of the other. This interviewing style that you have, I think it's very particular. Um, I can identify. I mean, obviously, you've got a particular voice, but it's you're laconic, but you're definitely engaged and you are showbiz savvy and you've got the stuff you like, but you're not insular and you welcome the guests who aren't in on the joke or the new listeners. How long did it take to get to that voice or did you shoot out from the get-go with that voice? That I was style? a weird I was a weird young person that listened to public radio. And I feel very grateful for that. I think before podcasting, it is hard to remember how little effort towards originality was put into American radio broadcasting. I mean, audio is will always be the, you know, stepsister to video because we're less good looking. Mm -hmm. There's a huge TikTok camera set up, by the way, in the studio that I'm, I'm interviewing you in, and I none of the TikToks will be of me, by the way. So, uh, <laughs> the, like, it was, you know, there was the occasional Howard Stern or Rush Limbaugh who was trying to do something, but generally... All radio other than public radio was not trying to do anything. Yep. And so I feel lucky that my folks listen to public radio. I would listen to that in the ball game. You have a public radio inflected voice, but you don't sound like a – I won't even know. The old, all the old names that we grew up yeah. listening to that sound well, like Well, I love NPR. some of those. I, you know, the, some of those old names are my absolutely my heroes. Yes. I don't think I probably talk like the folks on This American Life did either. Mm -hmm. 
I think that, and some would say that I'm in the liminal space in between all those things, too, too smug for casual talk things and not smug enough for uh, public radio smuggies. But I think my goal was I listened to Fresh Air. I, I love Fresh Air. I listened to This American Life. I love This American Life. And I thought, what if there was a Fresh Air about stuff I was into? Not that there was never stuff on Fresh Air that I was into. Or what if the lane that Ira had opened by creating This American Life for public radio? That's Ira Glass. Which was so extra- like so life-changingly extraordinary. Public radio was one or two things before Ira opened that lane. You know, it was a Prairie Home Companion or it was NPR News. And I remember listening to Ira listening to Roman Mars, who's the host of 99% Invisible. He had mm-hmm. a KALW show in San Francisco called Invisible Inc. And thinking, I don't want to do this, but if they get to do this, maybe I will get to do something like I want to do. And that was basically, you know, what if we treated, and now in podcasting, this doesn't sound crazy at all, but like, what if we treated hip hop and, you know, college rock and alternative comedy with the same respect and intelligence as Terry treats her guests on Fresh Air. And, you know, we also were us, you know. Jordan, my co-host in college, is still my co-host on Jordan, Jesse Go. He's a professional comedy writer and performer and has been our whole adult lives. And, like, that's just part of who we are. So it's fun. But it was, it, was, it was a conscious decision that there's things I like. I don't want to emulate them, but I want to sort of take what they've done and move in a different direction and pursue the things that I'm interested in with the belief, assurance, hope, that fantasy that the audience will meet me there. Yes to the whole first part, no to any of the second part. I had no idea if the audience would meet me. Honestly, like this is real. (laughs) It sounds like a bit, but it's real. Like I grew up just north of poverty, like just above poverty. Never, my lights never got turned off and I never went hungry. But I, you know, paid for my doctor visits with stickers from the state of California, right? But my parents were both people who did things that they believed in. My father was an organizer who was one of the founders of the veterans anti-war movement and very important. Uh, He and his best friend, Ed Roberts, very supporting Ed in the independent living movement for people with disabilities. My mom went to graduate school when I was uh, 10, 8, 10, and became a junior college professor. She had worked in a, a lighting store before that in retail. And I knew that if I could just make, you know, at the time, $25,000 a year, 20 years ago, I would be fine. You know, I know how to eat and not, you know what I mean? Pay your bills. And so it was really just, this is something I like doing. How can I make enough room in my life? Even if it means... You know, for a long time, I worked half time as a receptionist at the Trust for Public Land. Like, how can I make the room in my life to do this without going hungry? And after that, it was, as I said, one foot in front of the other, you know? I was prepping for this by listening to podcasts, which means I have a pretty good job. And I was curious because you had Tom Hanks there. I thought, oh, I wonder what Jesse and Tom Hanks are going to talk about. And (laughs) and, because you get big names because you're a big deal. And sure enough, it was Tom Hanks promoting one of these Tom Hanks movies that's come out in the last 10 years that you can't identify the name of. 
Otto, isn't it? My name is Otto, yeah. And I was so impressed because you did this really good interview with him where you mentioned the movie, I think, at the very top. You asked him a question that kind of was related to the theme of the movie, and then you just went. And for all I know, Tom Hanks has said everything he's said to you before to other people, and he's everyone loves him, um, so I'm sure he's a good person to interview. But it sounded like he was doing all kinds of deep personal stuff with you. He'd never met you. It was a film junket. Is that something you've always been able to do, or is that 20 years of work and, and also Tom Hanks' is a good interview? I think I have had the experience. Like it got very personal at the end, and it didn't seem corny or... Well, Tom Hanks is a performer. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing about Tom Hanks and that interview in particular was I wasn't sure if I was going to get somewhere with Tom Hanks because Tom Hanks is so lovely and so entertaining. He's Tom Hanks. That's why he's so great. Yep. He's great, always great, because he's delightful, right? But that is performative. Sure. It's not contemplative. And it's so charming that nobody cares, but it's fine. You know, he could go charm anyone, right? And I thought, it wasn't like I have to break through this, but it's like, can I get Tom Hanks to talk to me like we're human beings? And that, I think, is the experience that I've had over 20 years of, you know, I get to pick who comes on my show. So these are people who I admire almost universally, you know? And what I have learned from doing that is that they're, they're people, you know? Well, because I have never been brave enough when someone – I've skimmed it a few times where there's someone I want to talk to. They've got a new project. The project is not for me. It's probably mm-hmm. not very good. And the expectation is you're going to talk about the thing because that's why they're there. They're there to promote it. And I wish – I was listening to that interview going, man, I wish I could pull this off. Where you say, Tom Hanks is a new movie. Okay, enough about that. Let's have the real discussion. I think that I was, I was really impressed and jealous. So good for you. That one came together at the very last minute. I mean, we're 74th on the list of people for Tom Hanks to talk to. Came together at the last minute and I watched the movie the night before. So uh, generally speaking, I see what we do as, you know, if not a personal endorsement, at least an endorsement of people's work. Like we you did not endo- you did not endorse the, the movie. I didn't. That's true. But the movie had themes in it that yeah. I thought would be interesting to talk to Tom Hanks about. You know, like, and find out what he actually thinks. And the honest truth is that I think people. This is something I think I probably learned from from Ira Glass. And they made a wonderful comic book that you can buy for like $3 on their website about how to make radio. And it's that people will meet you where you are, right? So if you approach people with respect and you sincerely want to know what they have to say about things, they'll usually tell you. Like it's not – I'm not saying that you should take that approach to interviewing, you know, Donald Trump. You know what I mean? But uh, when you're talking about people who don't have a – you know, a news reason to be dissembling, people will usually meet you where you come. And so I just try and talk to people like they're people. Something that you have been interested in for a long time that interested me that you were interested in it was fashion. You've got a site called Put This On. Put This On. Good. Yeah. And I remember reading, oh, Jesse Thorne, who I like listening to, he's interested in men's fashion. I'm not, but maybe Jesse could help me figure it out. And I went on there and thought, oh, no, this is this is too much work for me. I'm not going to go thrifting. I'm not going <laughs> to. And you, by the way, right now, you've got a relatively modest beard. At various times, you've had a very 
I guess we call it a Bushwick beard. I don't Rasputin-esque. know. Rasputin-esque. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you're, you're serious about your presentation and your look. And I'm just not going to be Jesse Thorne when it comes to that. Um, but can you offer me some utilitarian advice? I'm, you know, I'm wearing an ill-fitting Banana Republic button down right now. And that's kind of my thing. Um, just because it's available and clean. Are there a couple things I can do on the regular that are going to improve my appearance that don't require me thrifting or looking for vintage pieces or any of the things that you tell people how to do? I mean, on Put This On, I think the special thing that we did, and I don't write on the site that much anymore. Uh, my colleague Derek Guide does. He's the editor these days. Um, and, a new Twitter uh, villain recently, by the way, through no fault of his own. And he's not a villain. Yeah. I just, the people who, yeah, that one was bananas because he is a very committed non-villain. Um, but anyway, the the purpose of it was fashion media is so obsessed with creating a context for luxury consumption that it is almost unusable. It's just a bummer. And the only other category of fashion media, especially for men, was <laughs> dudes. <laughs> Do you need cool shorts to wear while you're drinking beers? <laughs> not light beers. We're not talking about girls. Some manly shorts for guys who drink manly beers. Yeah. And I just didn't I like I thought men were I think men are capable of believing in aesthetics. Like thinking pretty things are pretty, you know? I would say our top thing was and is to think of the way that you dress as one of your forms of communication with the world. That just as the words that come out of your mouth or the way you stand before someone um, communicate, so do the clothes that you wear. It's one of the few choices that you get to make like that when you are out in the world, mm -hmm. other than what you say, right? I'm and, with and so it doesn't have to be your great passion, but you can wear clothes that fit, are of good quality, and are simple. I mean, you don't you don't have to have seven crazy patterns combined or whatever. Like if you have it altered, a navy blue suit will look great on you if you have, you know, a mask body. Like it is a piece of technology that has been designed over a hundred years to make you look good. And that's what it is. And the reality is people think they can't spend the money. And maybe you don't have the time for the thrifting or the vintage shopping. Those are some of the ways that I might do it, right? But the reality is that there is so much waste in people's clothing lives. And I'm including people at every socioeconomic stratum in the United States, in the first world generally, but especially in the United States, that for almost any of us, simplifying the clothes that we own will give us the opportunity to have better clothes. What is your favorite piece in your wardrobe? Man, alive. You know, there's a peacoat, World War II naval peacoat that I bought when I was 16 at a garage sale in Portland, Oregon. And I have had ever since and I still wear. Do you think we're going to end the interview on a, on a Portland thrift shop peacoat? 
<laughs> you did. Is that too? Is that too on brand? It's very on brand. I wouldn't. I, I also less. make vulgar jokes on. Yeah, you know. You're great. I'm a big fan, as you can tell. Uh, Jesse Thorne, this was great to talk to you. Thank you. It's a. It's an honor to be on your show, and I hope that folks who own businesses will uh, consider this. Thanks again to Jesse Thorne. Thanks again to the. Is it good fortune? Whatever uh, deities, whatever world allows me to do this for a living to talk to Jesse Thorne for a living. That's so cool. Uh, I'm not going to get mystical about it. I just want to thank Jelani, who's laughing. Travis is probably laughing for producing and editing my show. My sponsors, who I'm sure are having a hearty chuckle about this. Um, And you guys, except for the ones who leave super nasty comments on my iTunes page. You know what? Even you. You took the time to write, so thank you. This is Recode Media. We'll see you soon.